Welcome to AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get support and guidance through the chaos of parenting. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about how to explain anxiety to people who don't get it. That can be highly frustrating. And if you eat, live, and breathe anxiety like I do, when you come across somebody who doesn't understand anxiety, that can almost be baffling or insulting. But we have to take a step back and realize that not everyone is going to understand anxiety like we do because they're not living it. They're not reading about it. And so the general population's understanding of anxiety is pretty scary. And there's a lot of assumptions and a lot of incorrect misperceptions. And besides the people who are outside of the home, we have to deal with the people inside of our home. So we have to talk about their siblings, you know, the other kids in our home who don't understand why our kid is having such a hard time when they're not. And we also have partners who sometimes don't fully understand anxiety and we need to help them understand it as well. Maybe they're not in the line of fire. Maybe they go to work all day and they only come home at night, they spend a couple of hours with their child, and they don't see it. Or vice versa. Maybe you're not home all day, but you understand anxiety, and your partner is home all day with your child, and it's frustrating because they don't seem to understand anxiety. Now, if you have a partner who is not understanding anxiety, but on top of that, they don't believe anxiety exists, that is a bit different And I did a whole episode on partners who don't believe in anxiety, and that's episode 40, and you might want to listen to that episode as well to get further advice on how to deal with partners like that. But today I'm going to be focusing on how to help siblings, relatives, friends, and even just people in the school on how to understand anxiety. I did spend an entire episode talking about the school as well, and if you didn't hear that one, trying to find the episode number on that one. And that was episode 45. So if you're having the most struggle with the school system, I would listen to this episode, but I also would go and listen to episode 45, where I spent a lot of time just talking about the school and how to explain things to the school and uh, accommodations I think are helpful for kids with anxiety and OCD. I am going to spend an entire podcast episode on how to explain OCD to people who don't get it. And that will be next week. So if you have a child with both anxiety and OCD, you definitely want to subscribe to the podcast to make sure that you don't miss that episode. And if you have a child only with OCD, the next episode is going to be a lot more relevant. This is not going to explain OCD. So having said that, I did have a lot of people in my private Facebook group ask me to do these topics. And if you're not in my private Facebook group, you should definitely join because it's a growing, supportive, loving environment. There's over 2,200 parents in there, and there's nonstop support and love in there, and people are constantly posting advice and suggestions, and there's a lot of wisdom in there. And so definitely join if you're not in there. You can go to facebook.com backslash groups backslash AT Parenting Anxious Kids uh, to try to join, or you can go to my website at anxioustoddlers2teens.com, which is kind of the hub for my podcast, my YouTube channel, and the articles that I write. And if you scroll all the way to the bottom, 
you will find a pink button. And if you hit the pink button, then you can submit a request to join and I'll accept your request and I will see you in the private Facebook group. Anyway, let's talk about why it's important to explain anxiety to people who don't get it. Kids who live in the same house, (laughs) they need to know because they're going to get very upset. One, they're going to get upset by your other child's behavior. Two, they're going to get upset because they're going to think that you're treating them differently. And so it's important to deal with that. Partners are a totally different topic, but you want your partner obviously to get anxiety because they're co-parenting, hopefully. And relatives and friends, if they don't understand what anxiety is, they can be judgmental. And even if they're not judgmental, they can undo or cause distress for your child. Well, not undo distress, but they can undo the positive things that you're doing. You might have some plans on how you're handling your child's anxiety. And then you have a relative who comes and totally undoes that. That's super annoying. Or worse, they judge you and they criticize you for how you're dealing with your child's anxiety because they don't get it. I mean, that's horrible. So, and obviously the school environment, it's a struggle in and of itself. And I spent a whole podcast talking about that. So I won't go into that. So I think the important thing, I have two different ways that I talk about anxiety to people who are trying to understand it. And the first one is more of an adult approach. And then the second one is kind of how I talk about it to kids. And I have talked about this in previous podcast episodes, but I'm going to go over both of them really quickly. So for people who, who are older, older, older kids, tweens, teens, and adults, I always compare it to diabetes. And so I'll say to people, you know, anxiety has a very strong genetic component. So a lot of people get anxiety and it's not because of any trauma. It's not because of anything the parent is doing. It's not because anything the child's doing. It's not because of anything, any experience the child has had or didn't have. It's because it's a physiological condition and it's just going to happen just like diabetes. A lot of people surprisingly do not know that. To me, that's surprising because I think it's just such my world that I'm like, really? How can you not know there's a genetic component to that? But when I talk to parents, even in my practice, a lot of times when I say that, at least one parent will be like, no way, really? I'm like, yeah, because I'll ask, oh, does anybody have anxiety in the family? And they'll be like, well, yeah, but why? Well, because there's a strong predisposition for for people to get anxiety if it runs in the family because there's a genetic component. So then you want to move into talking about how it is similar to diabetes. And so because it's a medical condition that people can't control, for starters, they can get it at any age. So you can have a toddler who gets it just like you can have a toddler who gets diabetes. So if you're talking to somebody who doesn't understand anxiety, you want to continue to equate it to diabetes to really drive home that there is a strong medical component to anxiety. Now, I'm not talking about post-traumatic stress disorder or things that are coming from trauma today. I'm talking about physiological anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, separation anxiety disorder, panic disorder, where they pop up and they're not due to an environmental stressor or to a trauma. And so when you're talking to people, you want to continue to equate it to diabetes and you want to say, in anxiety, people have an overactive amygdala and they have some issues with their serotonin levels. And so when you have an overreactive amygdala, 
It's kind of like having a pancreas that doesn't work, except the amygdala controls our fear center. And so people with an overreactive amygdala are constantly seeing danger where maybe other people without an overreactive amygdala wouldn't. And so that that's the core issue with anxiety. It's physiological and they can't just shut that off. So I think for starters, you want to make that medical analogy. I think that really helps with some people who don't get it. And for kids or even, I mean, it just depends on who you're talking to, but with siblings and even to kids who have anxiety, who don't understand it, I will talk to them about an overreactive lifeguard or, and you don't have to use the word lifeguard if they don't understand swimming, but you can say there's a part of your brain that is very protective and it's good. We need that. And it's constantly on the lookout for danger. And I kind of like do this like thing when I'm talking to kids where like I have it like on top of my head and I'm like scanning the environment. And so this part of your brain is constantly looking out for danger. So it's like, what's that smell? Oh, I smell fire. Let me go look because now that seems like there might be some danger. And then I look out the window and I see, oh, my neighbor has their fire going. Okay, well, that's not dangerous. So then my brain calms down. And that's what our amygdala does, which is a good thing. It's like our lifeguard. It's always on the lookout for danger. It's what keeps us safe. And so it's an important part of our brain. But some of us have an overreactive one. And so it's really not great at its job. And so it's constantly looking for problems that aren't there. It's like, what's that smell? Oh my gosh, it's a fire. We need to run. We need to get out of here. It jumps the gun. And it hits the alarm bell in our body before really playing detective and figuring it out. And so when it perceives danger or it perceives a threat of any sort, it goes haywire and it can pump a lot of chemicals in the body that make the body want to run or to deal with a big, big problem. But the sad part is most of the time there isn't a big problem. And so people with anxiety have to learn how to train their lifeguard or train the guard in their brain to not react. Or even harder, they have to ignore their lifeguard and say, you know what, lifeguard, you're not really good at your job. And so I'm going to have to look and play detective for you because you're not automatically doing that. And so I'll have to train my lifeguard or fire my lifeguard and get a new one. You can use whatever analogy works for you, but that is the general analogy that I use when I'm talking to kids because I want them to understand That once again, it's a physiological thing. I'm just using different words. And two, the person can't really control that emergency response and that that makes it really hard for them. And you might want to use examples that speak to your child's anxiety. So you might say his overreactive lifeguard constantly thinks that he's in danger when he has to talk in front of people or when other people are around him, his lifeguard just hits the emergency button. Your lifeguard doesn't. You're sitting there in a big, big crowd of people and you feel fine because your lifeguard is working and it's like, I'm around a lot of people. It's totally fine. But your brother's lifeguard is like, oh my gosh, people are staring at you. They're judging you. This is an emergency. You need to get out of here. So use your child's particular anxiety themes in your example to really bring it home. So I want to talk about two other things. I want to talk about how do you explain specific anxiety behaviors to people who don't get anxiety, and then how can you show them how they can help in a more productive way? So stay tuned. That's what's up next. 
You're listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. For more parenting support, check out Natasha's parenting e-courses on a variety of topics. Each parenting e-course includes a series of teaching videos that can be watched at your own pace. For more information, visit anxioustoddlers.com forward slash parenting hyphen videos. Welcome back. So let's talk about that nasty behavior that nobody else seems to understand but you as anxiety. So the first one are meltdowns. People don't really understand how these meltdowns are different than maybe just a temper tantrum. And I do talk about that in episode 23. So if you want more information on how to explain that, or even if you're like, what meltdowns are a part of anxiety, then you should probably go and listen to that podcast as well. But the way that I explain meltdowns to other kids and mainly to other kids, I don't really talk like this to adults, but I explain, and even to the kids that have anxiety, I'll say, you know, anxiety builds up all day long. And so normally I have a whiteboard and I draw like this red swirl starting in the stomach. And as I'm talking, I'm growing the red swirl. So I'll say, you go to school and you're worried about throwing up and the red swirl grows bigger. And then you're worried about people staring at you and you're worried about all these things that you're keeping inside of you and you're not sharing with anybody. And they grow and they grow and they grow throughout the day. So when you come home, you're a huge red bullseye. So I draw like a stick figure and I draw like this big red swirl that's growing. And you can talk to your other kids about this. And when you come home and you say something simple like, okay, well, it's time to do your homework now. And your child turns into Satan. (laughs) You're like, no, I don't want to do my homework. You're stupid. I'm stupid. Life's stupid. And they're going on for about an hour. And your other kids are like, seriously, what is the deal? He is so bratty or he is so out of control. Mom, why are you babying him? So I explain to the other kids in the house that they don't come home with a huge red swirl. Maybe they do sometimes. Maybe they have a bad day and they come home full, ready to explode. But anxious kids are almost always like that. And so they have to find ways to de-stress and find ways to bring their swirl down. But often that is really hard because it's constantly growing. So that's a good way to explain it to kids. With adults, I tend to kind of just put my hands up. When I'm talking to parents, I'll say their anxiety is growing all day long. And so I'll kind of do a visual where my hand is growing, moving from my stomach up to my head. You know, and I give them examples depending on their own child's anxiety. And so you can use your own child's examples when you're talking to relatives and say he was afraid to go to school all day and then we forced him to go to school and then he got there and in first hour he was so nervous he went to the nurse and by the time he came home he had probably about 500 anxiety battles in his head and then when we tell him to go do something he just doesn't have it in him to hold it together anymore because anxious kids will hold it together all day long at school typically it is pretty uncommon for me to hear that anxious kids are having major problems at school. Now, having said that, there are tons and tons of kids who are having problems at school. So don't email me about that. But don't email me at all, actually, please. (laughs) I'm not returning emails. So thank you for those people that have stopped emailing me. 
it's too much. I can't email people. You can join my private Facebook group and get support there, but total tangent. Just want to throw that in there. Um, but I do try to explain to people that more often than not, anxious kids aren't going to look like that at school because relatives and even maybe partners or even siblings who don't understand anxiety will say, you know, it seems like he can do fine at school and his main issues are at home. So I don't know what, what do you think that tells you? Because he seems like he's doing fine when he's away from you. Well, that's completely ridiculous. That has nothing to do with you. The fact is anxious kids tend to be self-conscious. So they hold it together in all other areas. And if they're not, if they're struggling in all areas, that is an indication their anxiety is so big and so out of control, they can't hold it together. Because most anxious kids, if they can, they will, because they tend to be self-conscious and paranoid and they don't want the attention. So that is something to highlight with relatives and friends is, nope, that's common with anxious kids. You know, they, they tend to do well in all other environments except home. It's not about me. If you have a therapist who is saying, huh, well, maybe there's something in your home environment because your child's doing so well in all other areas, then you might want to make sure that they specialize in anxiety because unless there's something concrete that's happening in your home, and we do all have some family stress, but anxious kids in general tend to do better outside of the home than in the home. Now, I'm not discounting environmental stressors in the home and parenting dynamics and all that stuff, but I'm talking about in global terms with anxiety disorders, kids try to hold it together outside. So moving on, you also want to help explain the you want to explain to your kids and maybe even to relatives what the fight, flight, or freeze mode is. And so you can explain that when the amygdala or the lifeguard hits the false alarm, chemicals get shot throughout the body. And there's a lot of things that are happening physiologically because the body thinks it's having an emergency. So the body thinks it needs to react. So it's like caveman times. It thinks it's running away from a lion. And so the blood starts pumping to the heart, which causes a lot of heart palpitations. And physiologically, there's a lot of shutdown that's going on. And so that impacts kids in different ways. Some kids have so much adrenaline rush when they're anxious, and especially if they feel like they're being cornered or they're being pressured, that they will explode. So that is the fight mode. They're going to explode. There are kids that are going to run. And so I have had kids in my practice where I'm doing ERP, exposure response prevention. And if you don't know what that is, I have a video on it. You can go to my YouTube channel at youtube.com backslash C backslash anxious toddlers 78. I do tons of videos on different topics. So that is definitely worth checking out and subscribing to, but I do one on ERP. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, go there, go to my playlist, scroll down, you'll see ERP, but some kids are their flight and, and not fight. And so they'll run, they'll run out of the room or they'll run under the table. Um, you have kids that if they are facing their fears, they will bolt. So they'll run out of the restaurant, run out of school. Um, that is, that is the, the flight mode. And there are kids that have a freeze mode. And so all of this is going on and they're kind of like literally a deer caught in headlights. And so when you're a deer caught in headlights, you don't know what to do. You can't fight. You can't flight. (laughs) That kind of sounded weird. And so you just become immobilized. 
a lot of times when teachers or partners or uh, relatives don't get that, they will get very angry. They will see it as oppositional. So they will say, you know, you need to talk to me or you need to look me in the eyes or you need to respond when I'm talking to you. I am talking to you. So they misinterpret that as the child being like non-compliant and oppositional. And sometimes they miss the fact that that child is in freeze mode. And at that point, nothing is being heard because the child is, is shutting down. So explaining that to your other kids, explaining that to relatives and friends who interact with them on a daily basis could be super helpful. And explain it to them in the way that your child tends to react. Because each child reacts differently. You know, my my middle son, he tends to do fight or flight. He doesn't do freeze. And if it's fight, it's not pretty. And if it's flight, it's a little bit better because <laughs> at least he's flying away from us. So talk about the fight or flight or freeze mode to, to the people around you and be specific about how your child handles that typically. Another thing that happens a lot with siblings and relatives and friends is they feel like you're coddling your anxious child. They will have questions about punishment. So with your kids, your other kids, they'll say, well, why, why can't he, why can he do that? But I can't. Or if I did that, you would be yelling at me and I would be getting consequences, but you're not doing that with him. And I have that all the time because I have three kids and they're so different. And my middle son is very sensitive. Like I have to walk on eggshells with him because it's very easy to have him explode. And so if he's having a really hard time, I won't necessarily address his behavior. I will try to be putting out the fire that is about to happen. And my oldest she needs some very direct redirection because she's not going to get it otherwise. And so I have to be a lot, lot more strict with her and be very um, concrete and consistent. Whereas with my son, I have to be a little bit more gentler and I have to redirect him in a softer way. You know, every kid is different. So sometimes she would say, oh my gosh, mom, if I did that, you would totally be on me. And she's right, I would. Because they're different kids. So you want to explain that to the siblings in the house. And I always think it's a good idea to pull them aside, depending on their age, and have a private conversation with them. So don't do this in front of the anxious child. And don't do it with all your kids besides your anxious child, depending on how many kids you have, because that can kind of feel like you guys are all talking about your kid. And kids are kind of obnoxious, so they might go back and be like, we were just talking about you. (laughs) Meet with your child and depends on their maturity level. So if you have an older child or a child that is mature enough to have a conversation, pull them aside or leave the house and go get a drink or something and say, I know it's really hard to deal with your brother or sister. And you want to empathize first and say, I get it. You know, it is hard for all of us. And the house is sometimes chaotic. And I know there's things that sometimes we can't do because of your, I'm going to just say brother so that I can get in the moment So I'm trying to help your brother and your brother is in therapy or your brother is on medication and this is what anxiety is. And then you go into the whole lifeguard or amygdala thing. And then you say, and I know it sometimes seems really unfair when he has a meltdown and I don't punish him and you get mad at me for not punishing him. But this is what's happening to his brain at that time. He's having a false alarm and he's not going to be able to hear anything I say. And in fact, if I was to punish him or do the things that I do that are typical parenting that I do with you and maybe your sister, 
then he would explode and he wouldn't get better. He'd get worse. So because he's got this medical problem, I have to handle it in a different sort of way. So I do feel like it's much better if you treat your child in a mature way and you kind of partner with them to talk about this situation that's going on and why it looks the way that it does. It can also help if you talk to your relatives or your friends about it and say, I know that meltdown looked really nasty, but with his anxiety, he's having a physiological response at that moment and he's out of control. And it's not about having to leave the park. I know it looked like it was about having to leave the park, but his anxiety has been building up all day and that was just the last straw. So it's just like if you were diabetic and you were eating all these foods that were not okay for you and your sugar levels were getting out of whack, eventually, once your sugar levels were completely out of whack, you might have a severe reaction. You might have to go to the hospital because your pancreas is not metabolizing. Well, it's the same thing with anxiety. It's just, unfortunately, it just turns into ugly behavior. Always go back and relate it to something medical. So I feel like that tends to bring it down a notch and people are able to understand it in a more clinical, medical sort of way than a judgmental, critical sort of way. I always like to use this analogy. I'm very big on analogies and and feel free to make your own (laughs) because mine aren't that great. But analogies really help kids and even adults understand things in a more concrete way. And so I will say, typically I'll talk about this to parents in my practice who don't get anxiety and they want to punish it. I normally have, if I'm going to have a parent like that, normally it's one parent and not the other. Eh, I guess that's not true. Sometimes I've had both parents kind of see it as like a manipulative behavior and they, they just don't understand the anxiety. And I will say, look, if I was afraid of flying and I'm on the plane and the flight attendant comes up to me and says, Natasha, because she knows my name and that's really freaky and I don't know why she would know my name, but let's say she did. Natasha, you're scaring all the other passengers and you're hyperventilating and you need to calm down. And so we're going to fine you $50. And if I come back here and I see that you've got some white knuckles, it's going to be $100. Well, is that really helping? She's going to come back and I'm going to still be white knuckled and I'm going to still be hyperventilating because I'm scared. And now I'm even more scared because I'm afraid we're going to crash, but now I'm afraid that I'm going to get in trouble and we're going to crash. So it's a double doozy. So I'm hyperventilating more. She comes up to me and she's like, Miss Daniels, because she knows my last name too, because that's even freakier. Why are you still hyperventilating? I told you I was going to fine you $500 if you were going to freak out the rest of the passengers and make a scene. That's not okay. We don't do that on this plane. You're fine. This plane is fine. Now you need to calm down. If I come back here, I'm going to fine you even more money. Well, if she comes back, I'm obviously going to be worse. So I use that analogy for parents or relatives or even siblings to to realize that punishing anxiety or punishing the behavior that comes from anxiety doesn't make sense. Why would a flight attendant punish me for being afraid? It's not going to make me any quieter. Instead, if she came over and she said, I can see that you're having a hard time. What can I do to help you? You know, we have a quiet room in the back. And I made some space and you can come back there and try to calm down. And then I want to talk to you about why you're safe on this plane and why we're all safe on this plane. Now that I'm going to respond to, I'm going to feel a lot better. So use analogies like that for people who don't understand it and don't like the way that you're handling your child's anxiety. 
And if they don't get that, then you don't need to explain yourself to them because this is a frontline, first line approach of like, okay, look, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you're just ignorant and you just don't understand it. Or to your kids, they shouldn't understand it because they're kids. But after you explain it and they still don't get it or they want to debate with you, I'm not really talking about your kids now. I'm talking about like those ignorant people out there in the world then you don't need to explain it any further. You've done your your educating and now it's time to do your ignoring and distancing because you don't need people like that in your world. Another thing that people may not understand, this is the last one in explaining behaviors and then we're going to move on to how you can have people help you is when kids are aloof or not friendly, they're a little bit cold, maybe they're not wanting to go hug a relative or say hi, and maybe people are not understanding that. And so you might want to talk to relatives separately and say, look, I know it's really hard when she comes over and she doesn't give you a hug right away. And I want you to understand that it has nothing to do with you or how much she loves you. She gets really overwhelmed when she comes here because she has a hard time transitioning and all the smells and the noises, it takes her about 10 minutes to kind of, or 30 or whatever it takes your child to kind of acclimate to the new environment and to get used to you. And she feels really overwhelmed when people want to touch her right away. So please don't take it personally because she's like that with everyone. So that is how I would try to explain maybe some distance or aloofness that your child is giving off to relatives and friends and to the people that maybe are getting offended by it. Okay. So lastly, I want to talk about how you turn those people from non-helpers to helpers. This is especially helpful with siblings. And so when you're having your nice quiet conversation with a sibling of a child with anxiety, depending on their age, I get that when they're little, you're not gonna be able to do this kind of approach. You just have to explain the lifeguard thing and then put it in concrete terms. But for older kids as well, you can say, you know, there are some things that you can do to help your brother, and there are some things you can do that would hurt your brother. So let's talk about what they are. And you can do this even for little kids. You know, I talked to my six-year-old about what she can do to help her brother and what she cannot do because it won't help. And I try to talk to my older daughter about it as well. And we'll say, what things do you think upset him? So It's really helpful to educate the people around you on your child's anxiety theme. And it just depends on your comfort level as far as talking to relatives and friends outside of the home or even with your other kids. If you think that they're going to use that as a weapon and like taunt your anxious child. So use your better judgment with that. But like with my kids, I'll say, look, you know how your brother tells you to stop singing. Well, he's telling you to stop singing, not because he's being bratty or difficult, but that is one of his big anxiety triggers because he gets intrusive thoughts. And so he gets things stuck in his head and he can't get them out. So when you sing, he feels nervous because he feels like that song is going to get stuck in his head for days or weeks or months, and he won't be able to get it out. So I still want you to be able to sing because we all should live our life and not, you know, have to walk on eggshells. But when he gets really upset and says, stop, I want you to understand why he's reacting in such an extreme way. Or 
sometimes, um, so two out of my three kids have emetophobia, which is just a fancy name for a fear of throwing up. And if you haven't heard my podcast on how to help kids with that, you should listen to it. It's episode 35. So because I have two kids who are afraid of throw up, I let them know that. So I'll say, you know, two of you are afraid of throw up and they don't like conversations around throw up. And we'll just say that not so that we will not talk about throw up, but I just want them to understand the big reaction. So recently we were coming back from California. I don't know if I talked about this in one of my podcast episodes, but um, it was not pretty because my son needed to go pee and he has some social anxiety. And so he didn't want to pee in the middle of the desert, even though there was literally nobody around for miles. And my youngest has a major phobia, probably going to turn into OCD, but hopefully not about urine. And so she was freaking out because she was worried he was going to pee in his pants and she was going to have to smell it, which is kind of her ultimate fear. I know it's also sounds really weird, but I explained later because I mean, she, she had a fit for about an hour in the car. And so it was like nonstop crying on this road trip for an hour. And her siblings were yelling at her, stop crying. It's not a big deal. I'm not going to wet myself. What is your problem? And so later I talked to them individually and I said, she has a major phobia about pee, not your average. I'm concerned about pee, but a major phobia right now about it. And we're going to work on it. And I'm going to try to help her with it. Just like I'm trying to help you with your things, but she's going to freak out. And that's what that is about. Or like when she won't let her brother sit on her bed, when I'm trying to read them um, a bedtime story, she will freak out and say, get off my bed, get off my bed. And it's related to that. And so I explain not to make excuses for her behavior and not that we're going to accommodate it because we won't, but that he understands where it's coming from. So explain your child's anxiety to your other kids so they understand And if you have relatives or friends that are actively involved in your child's life, you might want to say to them, okay, these are my child's anxiety themes. So they get really, really upset when they have to talk to other people, or they are really nervous to eat new foods because they think they're going to throw up. It's not picky behavior. It's not just I'm a picky eater. It's a major anxiety and we're dealing with it. So please don't force them to eat foods that they don't want. Whatever you need to do, you want to connect the dots for them and let them realize that those are your child's anxiety themes. So then you want to move into the conversation of, so I hope you understand your brother's anxiety or my kid's anxiety, and there are ways that you can help. So these are the things that you can do to help. And then you want to just list out how you want this person to interact with your child and the things that you don't want them to do to interact with your child. So for example, you might say, when my child comes over to your house, if you don't mind, could you give them some space and maybe don't talk to them for the first 10 minutes, just say, Hey, and don't really acknowledge them any more than that and let them warm up. And I guarantee you, they're going to eventually come up to you. So talking about space is a good one with meltdowns. I will tell my other kids, don't talk to him when he's upset. I will deal with it. You don't talk. That's how you will help me. If you guys should just go about your business and ignore him, let me handle it. Because every time you pipe in and you say something, you're, it's like gasoline on a fire and you're making it worse. 
So have conversations with the siblings of what you want them to do when your child is either having a meltdown, having a panic attack, or you're dealing with some sort of anxiety in the moment and your other kids are wanting your attention. And so it's good to kind of make a plan, sit down and say, look, when this happens, can you please do this? When I worked in a group home, um, like right after graduate school, it was like a very intense group home and the kids were very, very mentally ill and very violent. So it wasn't really anxiety. It was more just a lot of violent, violent kids. And I would say, so like there was like, let's say there were like eight of them in the group home. And if a child was to go like completely ballistic, they would get really, really violent. And there was a safety issue for all the other kids while the staff were having to handle this one violent kid. And so I was like, as the therapist, I was like, staff, when you see a kid escalating, have a code word. And that code word means that everybody else needs to go to their room right away. And that was very effective because you don't have time to really address the other people in your house when you're trying to put out a fire, whether it's a panic attack type of fire or uh, a meltdown type of fire. So you can maybe develop a code word and say, look, when you hear me say this, that means you guys just need to go to your room and be quiet for a little while and play quietly while I'm dealing with this. Whatever it looks like, it's going to look different in everyone's home. So in my house, the biggest issue tends to be when one of my kids, ten, well, just one child, but I'm trying to not name him, <laughs> even though I only have one son. Okay, well, whatever. But when, when he explodes is really when I just want people to back away from him and I want to remove him and put him in a safe place where he can kind of reset and regroup. So talk to your kids about what plan they should have when these things are happening. With relatives and friends, if they're good friends, sometimes they feel like they need to, to jump in and help you. And if that's ever happened to you, I can imagine that is incredibly frustrating because when that has happened to me and somebody jumps in and they think they're helping and they're saying all the wrong things, or I know what I'm doing and I know exactly what I'm trying to get my child to do. I know where I'm trying to mentally bring them. And then they jump in and say, what is it, honey? You, you just wanted a cookie? Okay, well, can, mom, can she have a cookie? And you're like, really? Can you please stop? <laughs> it's not about the cookie and I don't need you interjecting. So that's not helpful and that it can be highly annoying. So you might want to say to your relatives and close friends, when my child is acting like that or when I'm having a problem, I know that you're trying to be helpful and I really appreciate it, but just let me handle it. Even if it looks like I'm not handling it well or if it looks like I don't know what I'm doing or my child is still not responding, trust me, we do this dance all the time at home and I know what I'm doing and sometimes it's just going to take some time. So you can help me the most by just maybe taking the other kids in the other room or by ignoring us and not giving it attention because the attention in and of itself causes my child to feel more anxious. So it's going to look different for each one of you, depending on what you're dealing with, what your relatives are like, or what your friends are like, or even what your other kids are like. But you should get the idea of making like a solid plan and verbally telling those people. And that way you can come back and say, you remember how we talked about you not like getting involved? Um, yeah, you don't have to do that. And so it might take some reminding. 
And then if after like fifth or sixth time, then they're just not respecting you. And that's a totally separate issue, which can very likely happen. So sorry about that one. Also, if you have kids where you're really trying to empower them and you're trying to get them to do things to face their fears, it can be very frustrating when you have somebody undoing it or judging you for being too harsh on your kids. And if anything, that's probably what would happen to me because I tend to encourage my kids to do things that can seem like if I had a visitor in my home staying at my house, they're going to just see me not going upstairs with my child when they're scared or when they're coming out of out of their bed over and actually this happens sometimes with my mother-in-law. You know, if my kids are having a hard time and they're coming out of their bed at night, that's a big issue for us that we're working on and I'm very big in empowering them and playing detective and getting them to talk about their green thoughts and if you're like what is she talking about? You can take my anxiety class, uh, how to crush anxiety. It's an online class. And I talk about red thoughts and green thoughts and how to empower our kids to think for themselves and problem solve and fight their anxiety. So my, my relative might look at me and say, in fact, actually what she does is she goes into the bedroom and she tries to take care of it herself, which is not what I want her to do because I want to deal with it myself. Um, I have a plan. We have a plan. We do things in a certain way. And in fact, after her visits, my kids tend to do a lot worse for a little while, anxiety wise, and I have to kind of get them back in shape. So if you are working on empowering your kids to face their fears and there's some resistance in having them do something and your child's kind of, you know, saying, I don't want to do this by myself. And you're like, you can do it. You know, what's a green thought? Or you can take a challenge. These are all, this is all language that I use in my online class. And you have a relative who's like, oh, well, I'll just go with him. It's okay. You might want to talk to them beforehand and say, look, this is the deal. We're dealing with anxiety. Has to do with the amygdala. Go back to listen to the beginning of the podcast and explain all that to them. And then say, it might seem a little harsh, but I am working on empowering him to face his anxiety. And so please don't jump in and try to help him because he's learning how to help himself might be a little bit of an awkward conversation, but it's definitely worth doing. You might have relatives who aren't going to get it and that's okay. Um, well, it's not okay, but I don't know at that point what you can do about it except just survive the visit. <laughs> so I did leave some other links in the uh, show notes because there's some related stuff that I thought might be interesting for you. So I do have a YouTube video on explaining anxiety and OCD to siblings so if you want to see that, and go to my YouTube channel, and I left a link below. Also, I left a link on how to deal with partners who don't believe in anxiety disorders. Ugh, that is totally annoying. And I left a link for how to deal with OCD and anxiety in school and dealing with the school administration, because that really wasn't the crux of what this episode was about. And I go into that in episode 45. So I hope that will give you some tools and how to talk to people to, who don't understand anxiety and gives you some better words and ways to explain anxiety. If you're enjoying my podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you can hit a star. If you're listening on iTunes, there are stars right under the name of my podcast. And when you literally just hit the star, that submits a review. And that's a super easy way to show your thanks 
and your support of the show. If you want to go above and beyond, you can leave a review. I appreciate when people leave reviews. I read them on the show. Um, The latest review said, Natasha is not only an insightful therapist, but also the mom of anxious kids. She gets it and offers sound advice that when practiced results in a happier family dynamic. This podcast has helped me identify not only issues with my kids, but also myself. Great resources for all caregivers of children with anxiety and or OCD. I appreciate that. And if you want to leave a review, I would appreciate it as well. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. They come out every Tuesday. And I hope that you find the sparkle in everything you do. Until next time, I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to AT Parenting Survival Podcast. For more tips and parenting support, visit anxioustoddlers.com.